Rochtrain, Hive Banigin, Harze, is Morleman Oak, Onoidrakas and Oakides, like a Smeharve Boyak and Oakdran, as a Hedda, Tachtensha, Agasa Portsoch, Sible Eta, Ershul, Le Bliangalenu, Ravlianish. When that terrible explosion devastated Chrysler, County Donegal, last month, people rushed to the scene. They coordinated their practical and personal resources to rescue the injured and to offer comfort. President Higgins cut short his official business in Strasbourg and arrived without delay. He embraced the bereaved and listened. He remained there until the last victim was laid to rest. He attended each funeral. When he spoke in public, he expressed gratitude that people in ever-widening circles across this island and beyond were, as he said, able to reveal their feelings and that their hearts were breaking. He said, being able to take the grief of other people into ourselves it shows a very important aspect of, a, of character, of a person, of a community, and of a people. When I read this in the Irish Times, I was grateful, because for so long in this country, in my lifetime and before, uh, revealing that your heart was breaking was unthinkable, at least in hegemonic middle-class culture. And it made me think of the Ban Chuinte, the traditional lamenter of the dead, whom so many visitors described before the Great Famine, uh, and John Singh described early in the 20th century in his book, The Aran Islands, uh, where he attended more than one funeral. To leave a dead person unlamented, people said, in, within this tradition, was to treat their body like the carcass of a cow or a horse, not human. For a man of any standing not to be keened by several women was a disgrace, a stain on a family's reputation. A long elaborate poem, on the other hand, extemporized over the body from the traditional stock and trade of oral tradition was an honor and something to treasure, something to remember. In fact, most of the texts we possess including Queen Artie later, the most famous one, were written down long after being composed in performance, uh, transcribed from women uh, who had memorized them, filling any gaps in the wording from their own familiarity with the practice. All Keens, all examples of Queenie, that, that is the verbal, the poetry of Queenie, which was missed, of course, by the people who didn't speak Irish. They, all they heard was the howling, but the words um, all the Keens follow the same pattern, but no two are quite alike, and many are unique. Before the Great Famine, all the women in a household might be expected to range themselves around a corpse or above a grave, to lift their arms above their heads and move back and forth, raising what the English called the Irish cry. This was a loud, repeated, drawn-out, oh, hon, oh, or alagón. Uh, these are the sounds the body makes in sobbing and groaning when the worst has happened and words won't come. This theatrical performance seems to have triggered a conditioned reflex as mourners and neighbours gathered in large numbers and each joined in the wailing and weeping. Not every woman could compose the kind of chanted poem we call a quina, however. The noted Ban Chuinze was a solo artist and a community therapist. She expressed the distress, disorient disorientation, 
affection and fury that people felt now that life had changed, been changed forever by the loss of this one person. Her voice, her active body and loosened hair, the words she chose from a large shared stock that she carried in memory constituted the queen. The queen. Traditional phrases and themes offer praise or vituperation, depending on whom they address. They describe grand hospitality, flourishing crops, thoroughbred horses, silver-hilted swords, even if the deceased had no such resources. They use images we might associate with horror films to confront the physical reality of death and decomposition. The performance, like a tragic drama, must have had a huge therapeutic, cathartic effect, allowing people in attendance to, as the President said in Chrysler, to reveal the grief they feel and that their hearts are breaking. A mourner at a wake or funeral might not always feel heartbroken, but everybody, every adult, has, and many children have had experience of grief. And it can be a great consolation if their community can acknowledge that. Better too, perhaps, if the horror movie images appear in the mind's eye while you're in company, when all the attention is on what has been lost and when there are others around to hold you. Traditional keeners didn't just praise the dead. They used their position to call out injustice, dishonesty, abuse, avarice, oppression, which is something that oral poets from the time of Homer have always done. Keeners, on occasion, were hired to publicise political meetings. Their voices carried, people gathered when that voice was heard. During the last three decades in our country, as awful revelations have emerged about the conduct of our institutions and of trusted individuals, artists have taken up the Banquintas toolkit to express grief and anger at some of the atrocities that have come to light and continue to come to light. 30 years ago, Sinead O'Connor called herself a keener when she used her fame to cry out against the physical and sexual abuse of children in church-run institutions and families. And she suffered, as we know, punishment, severe punishment for doing so. In the mid-90s, uh, coming to grips with the 150th anniversary of the Great Famine, Alana O'Kelly used her body, her voice, and her visual art practice. The centenary, of course, had passed in silence. It did come during the emergency. But in the 1990s, government was still inclined to shy away from anything but the purely academic. Some of what O'Kelly produced remained, however, in the Carrick and Shannon workhouse attic, open to the public. Then in 2014, uh, on Nolig uh, on the, that's the 6th of January, Chiara Conway uh, used her powerful musical voice and her performance experience to bring asylum seekers together with local people by candlelight for a public condemnation and lamenting of the direct provision system. Most recently, Chiara Conway has gone back, as Sinead O'Connor did for a while, to old songs of grief, in this case from Connemara, reinterpreting them for, her for our times. 
Her new album is called Queen. It was released on the 30th of March this year, and it includes her rendering of one short Queen from a rare sound recording. And she's recently completed a national tour that began in Inisir in the Aran Islands uh, and finished in the National Concert Hall. Even people with no Irish are learning to sing those songs. Some who've spent their lives insisting they don't know any Irish after 13 years of being taught it, like Hungarians with Russian after the Soviet Union fell, uh, they hated it because it was compulsory. They have disavowed it, but they too are discovering that there may be something in it after all. This year as well, the National Gallery of Ireland has honoured the heroic Catherine Corliss, who was once dismissed as a local historian, by purchasing Paul McCormick's 2021 portrait of her in her own kitchen. 30 years ago, Cormac O'Grada drew attention to the, what he called the sanitised and apologetic approach to the famine among Irish-based historians. This is during the, the famine, um, uh, 150th anniversary. He contrasted it with work by scholars in the US. He noted too that, again I'm quoting him, a leading Dublin academic had derided Robert Key's 1980 TV documentary Famine as, quote, lending sucker to terrorism. I was teaching in some American universities around that time, and I met many Irish Americans. What struck me was the difference in social memory between the people I met in the US uh, and what was familiar to me in Ireland from the people I knew, from spending time in Gaeltacht areas, from reading Gaeltacht autobiographies, and from going through the manuscripts of what's now called the National Folklore Collection in Belfield, UCD. Irish Americans I met spoke about the potato famine. They spoke about injustice, poverty, mental illness, and alcoholism. In Ireland, however, at that time, the famine was hardly mentioned, and neither was poverty although people donated generously to famine relief in Africa. And I knew next to nothing about our famine. I knew it was called Androchil in the folklore manuscripts, Askaige, uh, and sometimes the bad times. Uh, clearly, different stories had been told on one side of the Atlantic and on the other. But what's transmitted and what's suppressed doesn't depend only on which stories people tell. Declan talked about answers to questions that people hadn't been able to ask. Um, but whether a story is transmitted or not, or even told, depends on what people are willing to listen to. It's been obvious here in this country since the 1990s that people had been telling their stories over and over, but they were not being listened to. They weren't being believed. And here, of course, we have mis misogyny at work because so many of the people telling the stories were female or poor or both. Uh, a myth, which is the middle word in the title of my paper, which is uh, memory, myth and history or history. It's written down somewhere. Uh, a myth can be either a story that's completely wrong or it can be a treasured narrative that tells a community how things came to be the way they are. Either way, it occupies a place somewhere between memory and history, and it merits looking at. Since the famine commemorations in the mid-90s, I have come across quite a few statements that, oh, but nobody died here. 
though many accounts mentioned a place 10 miles away where things were very bad. And yet when the folklore graduate Cahal Porter, as a radio producer, went through the, the manuscripts of the National Folklore Collection in search of material to make documentaries for RTE, he found stories of land-grabbing farmers, land agents and gombine men who abused and cheated the starving poor. And I remember a story about a farming family who fed new milk to their pigs while destitute people starved in their boundary ditches. Carl Porter published books in English and Irish on his research. He wrote an excellent introduction to the, to the English language version, different material in each, uh, 500 individual items in English. He discusses the reluctance of historians to engage with the folklore record as evidence. That may be based on a false premise, he writes, and the premise that the folklore of the found, by dint of its nature as folklore, carries a nationalist inter interpretation of the causes, events, and effects of the calamity. Porter himself, however, found all points of view, from rabid unionist to rabid nationalist, in the uh, archives of, the, the fo the, of folklore. Famine had, of course, been a major issue during the land war that began in 1879, when the west of Ireland was again experiencing hunger and deprivation after hard, wet winters and bad harvests. For strong farmers and shopkeepers in particular, though, and the graziers, of course, the shopkeeper graziers that the president with a colleague has written about, the great hunger was best forgotten. Notwithstanding agrarian outrages in various places, in the second half of the 19th century, this country was recovering, and that class was doing quite well. Contracts for supplying bread or meal or coffins to a workhouse had been lucrative. The English language and the Catholic Church were in the ascendant. Railways were extending across the country. And the new middle class Catholics were cultivating respectability, a word that has been mentioned here already today. They dressed well, they wore shoes, read newspapers and sometimes even books. They avoided rough speech, they kept a parlour for special occasions. They sent their daughters to convent boarding schools, and in the case of the farmers, we heard that they aspired to have a quote, a bull in the field, a pump in the yard, and a son in Maynooth. They were careful whom their children married. Many of their offspring remained single and left large legacies to the Catholic Church. A great many young women entered convents. Um, if their parents could afford to send a fine piano or equivalent uh, with them as a dowry, they became choir sisters. And Katrina Clear, who earlier contributed to this series, wrote about that. Uh, they became choir sisters if they could afford a dowry, but girls from poorer households could become lay sisters. They did the heavy work. They carried the trays, they did the gardening, they did the laundry, did, they did the scrubbing of potatoes. In this kind of rural society, the poorer households were those of small farmers and farm labourers. That second group was considered much inferior and uh, its members were badly exploited, I believe, until the 1960s. Most of their children emigrated. The people who could not be spoken of uh, were the cottiers, living in pitiable conditions ever since the potato became established as a subsistence food uh, and then the uh, population 
of the poor and marginalised uh, exploded. When the potatoes failed, there was no slack in the system. So the Irish-speaking casual labourers and beggars who threw up shelters against ditches for themselves, their children and hens and a pig, if they hadn't already been sold, were the, they were the first people to starve and to die of the various diseases that preyed upon the people who were so weakened. Sometimes a landlord or a charitable organisation packed them into ships and emigrated them. Emigrate was a transitive verb at that time. Huge numbers died at sea or just after reaching Quebec. But the land they left meant more for farmers and graziers. Uh, the historian Brandon Maxivne, now of Galway University, has broken one silence with his book, The End of Outrage, carefully tracing the names that disappeared from his own hometown land um, near Ardra, County Donegal, in the 19th century. For the new middle class, especially east of the Shannon, the Queen, the lament for the dead, the loud, dramatic performance became embarrassing, especially east of the Shannon, after the famine. Also embarrassing were bare feet and the Irish language. Good manners required people, especially women, to disavow the body and sexuality and never to give in to strong emotion. By the way, uh, the Queen itself was very frank about the body, uh, especially women's bodies. is the one place a woman could talk about her body. And the Banchinta often bared her breasts, as well as literally letting her hair down. Alma Curtin was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from Vermont in New England. She spent months in Carasivine, County Kerry in 1893 with her Irish-American husband, Jeremiah Curtin, collecting tales and legends to publish in America. A little girl used to visit her from a big farm nearby and bring her honey or butter or potatoes. When Alma asked her about speaking Irish, this child said she didn't like to speak it because it was so common in itself. Now, my father's father was born on a farm like that in County Kilkenny. And a woman called Una Bulger, who became the mother of the New Yorker writer Maeve Brennan, came from another such very comfortable farm in County Wexford. Both of these young people got married early in the 20th century, neither of them to the kind of person their parents might have selected. Robert Brennan's mother kept a small shop in Wexford town. His father had been a pig dealer. He became a journalist and met Una Bulger in nationalist circles. Bicycles had a lot to answer for. Both took part in the rising in Enniscorthy and Bob spent much of the next two years, during which Maeve was born, in various jails. Early in 1918, when Sinn Féin wanted to set up a propaganda department in anticipation of an end to the Great War and an election, de Valera invited him to be its director at £3 a week. The Brennans moved to Dublin with their two young daughters and rented a house on Belgrave Road from Plunkett, where they lived next door to Dr Kathleen Lynn. Their third daughter, Deirdre, known as Derry, was born that October at the height of the flu epidemic. And three years later, while the treaty plenipotentiaries were in London, the Brennans bought a small house in Renala. Maeve Brennan turned five on the 6th of January 1922, the day before the treaty was ratified. And her father went on the run, and by no means for the first time. Twelve years later, when de Valera sent Bob Brennan to Washington as secretary to the Irish uh, uh, um, mission there, the, the Irish... Uh, 
can't remember. The whole family went along as well. They followed him there. Maeve, was seven, Maeve Brennan was 17. Uh, almost 20 years later, on the 24th of October 1953, the New Yorker magazine published uh, a story called The Day We Got Our Own Back by Maeve Brennan. It's deceptively brief and simple, as though told by a five-year-old, though no child could possibly have written it. Its action begins soon after that fifth birthday. Una Brandon is alone with her two younger daughters in their new house in Renla when a Free State search party arrives. Derry is upstairs, sick in bed. Downstairs, one man tries to get Maeve to say where her father is until her mother, a tiny, quiet woman, flies at him. When the men left, Maeve Brennan writes, she was, a quote, spellbound with gratitude, excitement and astonishment that the strange man had included me. But the story isn't over, and a second raid, a year later, raises it into three dimensions, like a house constructed inside a bottle, or pulled upright, allowing many points of view. This second raid, when the Free State soldiers wrecked the house, illustrates what Declan told us about men addicted to fighting. And also the observation he quoted from Hannah E. Skeffington about the usual soldiers' contempt for civilians, particularly women, though these had often risked their lives to help him. One of the men got his comeuppance, however, when he tried to look up the chimney and brought down a load of soot on himself and on the carpet. Una Brennan, usually portrayed in her daughter's work as timid, anxious, house-proud, laughed as though her heart would break. I could say a lot more about Maeve Brennan and the story she set in that house with their silences and the powerful unspoken feelings of her characters, but I've done that elsewhere. Maeve Brennan died in 1993 in a nursing home in Long Island where the New Yorker apparently had placed her after she became a danger to herself. She exemplified the silence, emotional breakdown and exile that Declan identified among the massive effects of the Civil War. Neither she nor her sister Derry could abide de Valera. After all, he had inflicted on their family. Gurmila Mahagwe. Thank you.